I wonder how many times Jesus had similar thoughts as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was about to go to the cross and endure the wrath of God. I wonder if Jesus thought, my, my God will come through always. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. All the way back to the beginning. We'll re-preach the whole thing. Just kidding. Because what we're going to do, I just, as a point of, to help us understand what preaching looks like, what maybe bad preaching looks like sometimes. As you know, we try to be expositional with the content intent of the sermon determines the content intent of the message. And we'll do the same thing this morning. Um... However, we're going to fly real high above Nehemiah, so we're going to kind of try and take a a bird's eye view over all of Nehemiah, and the way or the method in which we're going to do that is we're going to study how Nehemiah is a type of Christ, all right? What's awesome is that I think as you span all of Nehemiah and you look at these different examples where, G, where Nehemiah is a type, is displayed as a type of Christ, it actually takes us through the whole book. And not in every book you couldn't do that, I don't think, but I think particularly here it, it works well. And what I mean by Nehemiah is a type of Christ, what I mean is that uh, Nehemiah basically foreshadows Jesus. He does there's things that happen in Nehemiah's life that paint the picture of a Christ, a greater Nehemiah, if you will, a greater leader that is to come. One that will be able to do ultimately what Nehemiah could not do. And we see that. I think it's no, no happenstance, no accident that we get to chapter 13 of Nehemiah and they're sinning again. Right, so what's happening, I think, is is Nehemiah is showing us that this is what God's going to do, but there's going to come a, uh, but he's it's going to look similar, but it's going to look more complete, more final, more full. And so when we talk about the idea of like a type, Nehemiah is a type. Jesus is the anti-type, right? Because Jesus would be the only anti-type because he is Jesus. All the others are types because they're not Jesus, but they foreshadow. Jesus would be another way of saying that. So, with all that said, some of this, some of this is going to sound a little familiar. I mean, I hope all of it sounds familiar, ultimately. Uh, but what we're going to do is just, again, walk from the very beginning. And, and what the, another point of narration for you guys is that well, what I want to do is take each of the types, if you will, each of the examples of where Nehemiah is foreshadowing Jesus and put those into a more of a... Uh, um, command, if you will, like a, an instructive thing for the church, an instructive point. Um, I can't, th- can't think of the other word, the better word for that. And in, an imperative, there we go. Uh, one, as typically, most of our points are imperatives. They're, they're speaking like, we should do this in light of this truth. So we're going to take a type, 
and I'm going to give an imperative, and then I'm going to explain the type and show you where Nehemiah and Jesus and kind of how that fleshes itself out. That's how we're going to, we're going to work all morning this morning, okay? All right. So now, to kind of bring us into Nehemiah, we talked about from the very beginning that we're all called to be reformers, bringing about reformation where we go, right? So we're all to teach people to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength. We're to lead the people. We're to see the world as God desires the world to be and then seek to bring that about, whether that's marriage, parenting, whatever, at its kind of umbrella statement, that is the teach them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that would, if, we, if the world would begin to do that, if we would do that, then all the other convictions and the way life should look as God wants it to should fall into place as we love God and, and learn God's heart for how life should be. But again, what I want to do today is I want to show you today that we're all called to be reformers by showing you how Nehemiah was a reformer foreshadowing and preceding the ultimate reformer, Jesus Christ. I want to show you how Nehemiah foreshadowed this great Christ that was to come. I want to show you how the actions of Nehemiah foreshadowed the great actions and doings of our Christ that was to come. So here's the goal for today. The goal for today is just very simply this. I want you to walk away worshiping Jesus Christ in Nehemiah and be spurred to do likewise. That's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to then, in light of being spurred to worship Jesus in Nehemiah, I want you to see glimpses of God's kingdom in the rooms that you walk into every day going forward. Right? So... If you're worshiping Jesus, you will then desire to see the kingdom in every room that you walk into, every relationship that you step into, every work meeting that you're in, every parenting situation that you're in, to see how God might desire this to look more like His kingdom as a reformer for His kingdom. So we think about Nehemiah and Jesus, we think both show us God's plan. I think that is God's unhindered glory dwelling among His creation. Uh, among many things. I think that's a big piece here. God's glory dwelling, that's what I think you see there as we read. I'm, I'm going to go and say it now because I'm not going to really come back to this. But there at the end of verse 9, that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. You heard me linger on that earlier. I think that's what God is doing. That's where Revelation is taking us, or where we're headed to in Revelation. So Nehemiah, God's people, right? So both show us God's plan, God's unhindered glory dwelling among His creation. Nehemiah then, we're talking about Nehemiah and now Jesus, which is going to kind of be our, our pattern all day today. We'll kind of have an imperative, then we'll read some passages, talk about Nehemiah, talk about Jesus, talk about how we live in light of that. That'll be our pattern all day. Nehemiah is God's people living in really a kind of a garden-type setting where the glory of God would radiate from. Kind of more of a geographical, this is where God will radiate from. His glory will radiate from these, this place as God's people live here as His people. And the idea then is to then be a blessing to the nations and expand that out. Jesus, on the other hand, 
God's people as living in dwellings of God. Like God will indwell these people, each one radiating and taking the glory of God where they go. So Nehemiah is going to bring about this more physical, geographical reformation for God's glory to dwell. That's pointing towards Jesus who is going to make this more personal spiritual dwelling place where God's glory will dwell there and go wherever that goes. And then as we spread, His glory then spreads as it was intended intended to from the very beginning. But each one, each glory indwellment of God, I just made up a word, each glory place where God's at, where they go, His glory goes. Filling the earth. All right, so, first example. Now, again, an imperative here, and we'll talk about the type. Imperative, ask God for deep convictions concerning the worship of Him. All right, now, I know this sounds very, very familiar. Not all of them are going to be quite so familiar, but that's from the, from the very beginning. Deep convictions concerning the worship of Him. It's kind of two parts here. There's the worship of Him and the, the convictions that are part of the worship of Him. I think we have to begin here because without the worship of the Almighty God, really nothing else happens, or at least nothing else happens with the right motive. Right? It's where Christians get messed up all the time. They're doing a bunch of Christian stuff, but they're not doing it because they worship God, they're because they really worship themselves. But if your heart does not abide in Christ, then it will abide in whatever other God you deem worthy. All right, so when I think of type here, I think Nehemiah had deep convictions concerning the worship of Yahweh, and I think Jesus does the same thing later. Let's talk about these. Let's read Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11. We'll read this quickly because we've already read it once. He says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Hear Nehemiah's convictions, okay? Hear them right there. Then he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your, uh, people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Again, hear his conviction. This is conviction driving his confession. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded. Okay, again, hear his conviction here. Remember the, his convictions about God and the worship of Yahweh. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. What happens? Why does God's name dwell there? God's people worship Him. That's where His name dwells. They are your servants and your people. Again, His conviction. Whom you have redeemed by your great name, by your great power, I mean, and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, of course, this man being King Artaxerxes. I think there are many examples of Christ's 
convictions concerning the Father. I'm just going to give a couple examples where we see Jesus concerned about the worship of his Father, both in his own life and then as he teaches others. So Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him. This was in the middle of Jesus' temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, this is Satan talking to Jesus. He says, he says this, I, all these I will give you as if they were his to give, right? And if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, what? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Matthew 22, 34-38, another example. We've been referencing this a lot. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, <laughs> asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. All right, so we, we could spend all day just looking at different examples. How, to, how did Jesus find and what was Jesus' convictions concerning the worship of God and what God has said about himself that leads to the worship of God and that we should worship God only. This is just a couple good examples, I think. So as we think about Jesus and Nehemiah, Nehemiah showed us what it looked like to believe that God was holy, righteous, great, awesome. That God was a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. I think these were convictions that Nehemiah had that led to the worship and the subsequent obedience of the Father. But Jesus, on the other hand, came and showed not what it looked like to believe that God was holy, righteous, great, and awesome, although he did. But I think Jesus came and showed what it looked like to be holy God, to be righteous God, to be great, to be awesome. What it looks like to keep perfectly the covenant and keep perfectly steadfast love. Jesus not only, so Nehemiah displays his convictions about these things. Jesus displays his convictions about these things by being these things. You see how the type, you see the foreshadowing, these convictions, but then Jesus comes, believes these things, and lives these things. We see a life perfectly in Christ where he abides in the Father, perfectly dependent on the Father, perfectly submissive to the Father, perfectly loving the Father. We don't just see a deep conviction about the worship of God, but we see the perfect image of Yahweh worship in Christ. I think what Nehemiah pointed to here from the very beginning is Jesus, who Jesus is. All right, so then, so then the question... So again, imper imperative, Scripture, Nehemiah, Jesus, now us. I think the question then we have to ask is how do, we, how do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of Jesus' embodiment of these convictions and worship of Yahweh? How do, we, how do we live abiding in the Father, dependent on the Father, worshiping God with all that is in us? How do we do that? It's very core, how do we do that? And I, I think... I think, I just want to propose, I think the best answer to that is 1 John 4, 19. We do that because He first loved us. We love, we worship the Father, we love Him 
because he first loved us. I think at its core, right? So we can talk about spiritual disciplines. We can talk about worshiping together with the church. And all those are good things to help us and help us abide in the Father, studying the Bible, fasting, praying, all those things. But none of those things will happen if he doesn't first love us. So I think all this happens because he first loved us. God's love for us precedes our affection for God. And our affection for God precedes God glorifying obedience. I'm going to say that one more time. God's love for us precedes our affection for God. And our affection for God precedes God glorifying obedience. We love because He first loved us. We worship because why? Because He first loved us. I think the same thing is true with Jesus. I think Jesus worshiped the Father because the Father loved Him. I don't want to get into a chronological with them. <laughs> but Jesus was able to lay His life down the Father because He knew the love of the Father. He trusted the Father. He worshiped the Father. And you know, as I was thinking about this, we have so many deep convictions concerning the things we desire to worship. We develop deep convictions about lots of things. It's just oftentimes they're not the important things. Security for our family. Right? So we work hard, have lots of money, a nice house, and closed borders. I have lots of convictions about those things. But what about convictions concerning the worship of Yahweh? Right? The worship of God, the worship of Jesus. Why? Or the American dream. Right? Many of us, it's very dangerous. We have this conviction about the American dream that we can have whatever we put our eyes to and we, we, can, we can be the president of the United States, right? All of us grew up thinking that, right? You can be the president of the United States. I mean, I didn't think that, but that's what I was told, right? I ain't going to be president. I don't even think I would want that. So what do we do, though? We Practically, we push our kids to learn 2 plus, more, two, plus 2 equals 4 more than we do the God who created 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right? We develop deep convictions. We should develop deep convictions con- about loving and worshiping God. How do we do that in part? So yes, because He first loved us. I think that's the foundational core. and We, we can't forget that. I think that's, that's where legalism begins to set in. I, I'm going to do all these things so that I can demonstrate my love for God. But how, how can I do these things? What, what's even the root or the foundation for this? What, what is it that precedes all this? There's, there's something, and that's God loving us in spite of our sinfulness. That precedes that. Then how do we, how do we then, based upon that foundation, continue and work through that? But I think we do that by repenting of the things we love more, we worship more, and asking Him to perfect His love in us. So 1 John 4.12, No one has ever seen God, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is, what, perfected in us. Right, so there's this, there's this idea that God's love is perfected in us, and one of the ways that He does that is, is that as we exemplify love for each other. Again, I don't, I don't want to flesh all that out. I, I just want you to see this, that I think that the key to loving God more is asking Him to help us see His love more. Helping us to see His love for us more. If that's what precedes our loving, then we must... I think ask God to help us understand his love for us. And I think here, I think Nehemiah knew God's love for his people 
because he rehearsed the story of God's love for his people. That's what he does here in Nehemiah. He remembers God's love for his people. That God's steadfast love and his commitment to his people. I think Jesus knew God's love for his people because he knew the love of God as God's true son. I think Jesus knew God's love for them because he knew God's love for him as his son. The good news is this. If we're talking about developing deep convictions for worship of God, as we seek to abide in Jesus, as we seek to abide in, in his word and his truth and what scriptures teach us, we abide in his never-ending, all-satisfying, I'm sorry, let me back up. As we abide in Jesus in this, we abide in his never-ending and all-satisfying worshiping of the Father. As we see Jesus, as we abide in him, what is he? He is perfect worship of the Father. He is perfect worship of Yahweh. He is perfect in his convictions concerning who God is and what God has said about himself that would lead to the worship of God. And as we abide in him, as we learn him, as we remain in his truth, we are remaining in the one who has exemplified for us never-ending, all-satisfying worship of his Father, our Father. Okay, so that's type one, I think, all right? Number two, Again, imperative, ask God for heartbreak over sheep without a shepherd. Ask God for heartbreak over sheep without a shepherd. This one will be much quicker (laughs) as we move. All right, so type, thinking about type here. Nehemiah was heartbroken over the fact that God's people were not living as God's people in God's place under his rulership and blessing. Just look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what happened? He had looked, he had gotten the report about Jerusalem. It was broken. God's dwelling place was not there. God's people were not as his people. He was broken about these things. Look at Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38. Now let's look at Christ. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think Nehemiah's looking out. God's place is... So, so it's not just that God's not dwelling there, but God's dwelling there exemplifies and, and, and displays God's rulership over His people, God's shepherding over His people. Jesus here is seeing the crowds, and they are like those without a shepherd, sheep wandering hopelessly, helplessly about without a shepherd. So understand that to be a sheep without a shepherd was to be facing really inevitable death and destruction, Right? Notice in the stories of Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness. So think back. I mean, they still had a shepherd, though, right? They were, when God was leading them by a pillar by day and fire by night and manna from heaven and all those things, He was still shepherding them, leading them through the wilderness. But here in Nehemiah and in Matthew, the people are without a shepherd, wandering the wilderness, but without. I think, I, mean, I don't want to nuance this too much, but I mean, ultimately, 
God is still over his people, even though they're not in his place. But there's still a brokenness here that I think Nehemiah recognizes and a heartbreak over what's going on. Now, as we think about like our situation, where we're at, we live, we've talked about this before, but we live in such an individualistic society and authority opposing society. Like we don't want a shepherd. Okay? Like we struggle to see oftentimes even the value of pastoral shepherding, let alone Jesus as our chief shepherd. If we think, now here's the deal, if we think then as a culture, as people, that we can function without a shepherd, then we're never going to be heartbroken over those without a shepherd. Does that make sense? If we, who are supposed to be following the great shepherd, are willing to just go days without even considering him as my great shepherd, how are we ever going to be heartbroken over those who have no shepherd? Jesus here is heartbroken over these people. He had compassion on them like sheep. Those who are like sheep without a shepherd. See, those without a shepherd do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what I think Jesus is recognizing here. These people, what they love with all their heart, soul, mind, and such as whatever they perceive at any given moment that will deliver them the most joy. They give it all they got. That these ones wandering helplessly are being taken advantage of by wolves and, 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 and headed towards things that will just destruct upon them. They're a wanderer. I think Jesus looks at them and he's wandering. They're broken and in pain. I think Nehemiah knew this. As God's people were wandering in brokenness and in pain. They knew this. They saw this and they had compassion on them. And my prayer is that God would develop in us a compassion for sheep without a shepherd. And just maybe we would do that as we grow in understanding our desperate need for the great shepherd. And we'd look at our neighbors and we'd see that they're wandering, wandering helplessly and hopelessly like sheep without a shepherd. That there's a wolf right around the corner at any moment. You know, the good news is this. We have a great shepherd who was heartbroken over us and who at one time did not have a shepherd. And Jesus looked at us as one without a shepherd and had compassion on us. And His compassion for these sheep led him to death on a cross so that those without a shepherd could feel the warm embrace of the great shepherd. And Nehemiah, right? His compassion for this people, for God's people. And you see that as his concern in here. Yes, he's going to go build the walls. Yes, he's going to go, you know, establish his dwelling place. But why? His compassion on these people who are your people, God, that you've redeemed by your hand. And if we are to have compassion for those without a shepherd, I think we must first see and taste the compassion of the shepherd who rescued us. See that, taste that, experience that, know it. We'll flesh this one out a little bit more. What, what did that shepherd do? Right? That's where we're headed. All right, third imperative. Jesus has called you to the task of building his dwelling places. I'm going to 
I'm going to nuance this a little bit. I think there's a very particular role that we play in this. Jesus has called you to the task of building His dwelling places. So thinking about type, Nehemiah called others to the task of building God's kingdom, to build God's dwelling place. So Nehemiah is getting ready to go, and what's he do? Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah is set to the task that God has called him to, and he pulls others, he invites others to be a part of the same task. Where do we see this at? In Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is, all, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Nehemiah and Jesus were both called to the task of building God's kingdom, right? So they're both set to the task. What'd they do? Nehemiah was called to the task of building a wall around the temple where God's people could live as God's people. God could dwell there. And then what happens is Nehemiah invites co-laborers into this task. So that's Nehemiah. Jesus. Jesus was sent for the task of building new hearts that would be the temple dwelling places of the living God. Again, same task. Dwelling place of God, God's people. Dwelling place of God, God's people. Jesus draws out of the crowds people who will labor with Him in building these temples. What's He saying? I'll I'll make you fishers of men. You're going to be a part of the process of bringing about these temples that will house the dwelling place of God. Although He doesn't lay all that on them at the sea, uh, on the shore that day. I'm sure they would have, you know, their minds would have just exploded, right? We're going to do what? Jesus is the task He was about. These co-laborers are true partakers, I believe, in the transformation of these hearts. All right? so I just want us to see this. Like, look at Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 15. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Right? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? Okay, simple enough. And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Who sends them? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Look at our part in that. I'm not saying that to give us glory. I'm not, I'm not saying that to, to pat ourselves on the back. But, but we're a part of this. We're a part of seeing these people become t- temple dwellings. Like the place where God would dwell. That, that His presence would be now radiating from another person, another someone. And we, God has called us to be partakers in that task, co-laborers in that task, to walk beside Jesus and see people, to see temples restored, if you will. New hearts where God would dwell 
Jesus calls us to this task. So, yes, sure, God, absolutely, God is the spiritual transformation. He's the one that rips out that new heart, makes it receptive to the God, all those kind of things, absolutely. But God has chosen the means of his now temple, the place where he dwells now, to be the ones who would share this good news with these now potential and hopefully indwelling places of God. Nehemiah had a great task that he was called to. But I'd venture to say that the task that we were part of is even greater. A task, and think about this, the task that, that we are being invited into is a task that doesn't involve the building of a temple that can be torn down by hands or a wall that can be destroyed with an army. We are part of a task where the temple was torn down and was rebuilt in three days. We are part of a task where the word takes root brings transformation, and now is the dwelling place of God forever sealed in the Holy Spirit, right? So when you think, if you've done any kind of building with your hands or seen anything like, like you want something that's going to stay there and stick there and, and last forever and not get blown down with the wind or fall apart with an earthquake or fall by the wayside when a robber comes and steals that which is good for that person. We're part of a task that's eternal. You know, I, I think, so if we think of being a disciple of Jesus, like we all, I think we think that being a disciple of Jesus just simply means learning about Jesus often. I think we kind of fall into that rut in our very information-driven society where we, okay, Jesus, well, I just need to learn about Jesus. <clears throat> And, of course, we often skip over the learning about Jesus. Like, one of the things is that we're followers and fishers of men like Jesus. But being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean just us learning to look like Jesus, but that means us learning to look like Jesus particularly in the way that he makes disciples. I'm not talking about methods, but the fact that he's making disciples. Like that's part of our calling. So Nehemiah is leading people to be about God's task. Jesus is leading people to be about God's task. We too have been called to both be about the task of leading people to be about the task. Now, the good news. We have a Savior that was and is ultimately the dwelling place of God. He was the fulfillment of the temple the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, right? Colossians. If we abide in Him, then we too are the dwelling places of God. And if we are the dwelling places of God, and think about this with me, if we are the dwelling places of God, then this task that we have been called to of building these dwelling places of God is very, very simple. It's this. It's to invite others to the glorious enjoyment of the presence of God through the blood work of Jesus Christ. That's what we get to do. Do you understand that? We are the blood-bought dwelling places of God where we get to enjoy His presence. And we just get to invite people to that. Now there's a way into that. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we get to do. And I just, as I was, I was actually got in my truck this morning, I was driving here this morning, and I, I just thought to myself, like, how many days, how many moments, how many hours go by that, I, like, that I'm not enjoying the fact that God indwells my, my heart? Like how, how 
But imagine, I've been showing you, Father, right? You indwell me. Oh, you should come do this too. You should come be a part of this too. Like, fourth imperative. The chaos of the world will always rage on against the cause of God. Always. At least this side of eternity. Chapter 4 of Nehemiah, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 7. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Doesn't sound pr- I'm not going to read this passage, but doesn't that sound familiar to, what do you mean you're going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in just a few days? It took us years to build this. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. And then verse 7, But when Sunbalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that uh, the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Look at Acts chapter 4, 25-26. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, what does Jesus say? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of a nation full of Christians, so go do likewise. Send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves. So go find a place to hide until I come back. So be wise as serpents, as serpents, and as innocent as doves. All right. So it's very briefly. We know the opposition opposition that Jesus faced, right? I mean, if there's anything, we we know that this opposition coming against Jesus. Think about opposition in our context today. I don't want to be an alarmist or any of those kind of things, but. But first of all, much of our opposition, I think, daily probably leaves us alone because we don't say much. I'm not saying we need to go out and be a bunch of jerks, but at the same time, like, are we proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's going to be offensive. We, if we go out and proclaim the love of your God with all your heart so much, that's going to be offensive. At the same time, though, opposition is probably coming. I mean, our, our government, if, if, if your head's not stuck in a sand hole, like, it's coming. But, here, but praise God, because I think this means that the true church will be stronger than ever. There's a great article by Russell Moore this past week. I had posted on Facebook. He's talking about, you know, the Pew Research shows that Christianity, like, is on the, fall, like on the decline. And it's interesting, but what I, what I think was particularly important that, that Russell Moore said he said that uh, we don't have more atheists in America. We just have more honest atheists. And what he meant by that is that 
for many years in the country, there have been other motivations for being a Christian. It was the socially accepted thing to do. It was weird if you marked other on the box of your religion. Now what's happening is all of those other potential motivations, social motivations, are being removed. And what's left? A love for God and a redeemed heart to be a Christian. That's the only thing that's left, or it's going to be left. And so what's happening is now those who are not truly Christians are going, eh, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd rather not mark that box, because that's not me. So what happens is we think about opposition. There will always be opposition. And we were told this from the very beginning, that there will be suffering. And that he, he at this point, is sending his disciples out like sheep in the midst of wolves. We need to be prepared for opposition. All right, now let me think about this. As we think about Nehemiah prepared for opposition, Jesus thinking about opposition and the nations raging against him, what did it look like then as a Christian to be prepared for this raging of the nations against God's cause for those of us who are building God's kingdom? What I don't think preparing for opposition means is secret bunkers and supplies of water. What I think it means is trusting in living water and knowing that our bunker away from harm is in heaven awaiting, upon, awaiting us upon our death or His return. Notice what Jesus says. He says to His disciples, and this is very applicable to us, I'm sending you out into the midst of wolves, not into a hiding place from these wolves. What did Nehemiah do? Did he avoid the wolves? No, they kept coming, right? They kept coming. Jesus, did he avoid the wolves? No, when, when he, Peter came to slice off the dude's ear, he says, what, put your sword away. This is my hour, it has come. Nehemiah walking in the face of the of the nations raging against God, foreshadows for us the one who will come and walk among the raging nations. Except this one who will come, Jesus, won't just walk among the raging nations and the opposition, but will ultimately give His life at their hands. He will lay His life down for the very people He calls out of the darkness. And Nehemiah will lead through it, Jesus will lead through it, and then die. Here's the good news. Jesus right, already laid his life down before these enemies that rage against God. Amen? He laid his life down. It's already been given. The enemy death, the enemy death has been defeated. You know what that means for us? who go out among wolves, who go out among the raging nations, as go out in opposition that may be coming someday if Jesus does not return soon. For our brothers and sisters in countries that face opposition and death every day, you know what is true for them and is true for us? Is that we don't have to die ultimately. We don't have to die ultimately. You see, because Jesus died and His Father raised Him again, He overcame the worst thing that these enemies could do to Him and to us, and that is administer death. He overcame it. This leader 
overcame. He faced the raging nations. His life was given. He overcame death. And so now we, in living in light of that, don't have to fear death. We can go into the raging nation. We can go into the opposition and not fear death. Now, because He laid His life down and God picked it up again, Jesus, we too can lay our lives down because on the other side of eternity we will pick it back up again. We see here, Nehemiah is leading his people into the raging nations. He's leading them into opposition and moving it forward. But one thing that Nehemiah couldn't do is he couldn't lay down his life for those people in the way that Jesus laid down his life for his people. Nehemiah, Nehemiah is foreshadowing a greater one to come. We should continue. The next imperative, because I lost count. The kingdom we are building is not of this world. I can go back and count. One, two, three, four, five. Here we go. Nehemiah was accused of building an earthly kingdom that would oppose King Artaxerxes. Okay? This is another, again, another type. Nehemiah 6.6. 6. Look at this. It says, In it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. All right, sounds awfully familiar. John chapter 18, verse 33 through 37. So Pilate entered into his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, all right, so this is right before the crucifixion. He said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. From the beginning time, right? Beginning of man, it has always been God's kingdom versus the kingdom of the age. Man's kingdom building versus God's kingdom building. Think of the garden. That's what's going on in the garden. Adam and Eve go, I want to build my kingdom. God says, I wouldn't do that. Then the Tower of Babel. There's a hundred other examples. Egypt. You know, the, that's, I'm thinking of particularly the Egyptians. We'll build our kingdom. God says, no, you won't. It's my kingdom. I'll rescue my people and build my kingdom. I mean, when, when, God's, when God's looking at the Egyptians, going, I'm going to rescue my people and build my kingdom, God knows in His mind that of, and is working out His plan that eventually His kingdom will triumph over the Egyptians, will eventually triumph over the Canaanites, will eventually triumph over all of the world. Cain's line will be done. So when Jesus comes along, He tells them the truth. His kingdom is not of this world. I am not trying to build a kingdom that looks anything like your kingdoms. 
But Jesus knows that his kingdom that he serves will soon overtake the kingdoms that these people are most concerned about. There's a couple points of application for us. One is this. This changes what we build for. What do we build for? If we're building a kingdom that's not of this world, what do we build for? The kingdom we build for is not of this world. And so therefore, we shouldn't be concerned about the same things that involve the kingdoms of this world. We're concerned about different items. We have different interests. What do I mean by that? You know, our world's concerned on safety, security, peace, love, happiness. I mean, yeah, we are concerned about some of that, but from a different perspective. We are concerned first and foremost about the glory of God displayed. Loving God, joy in God, security in God. What does that security look like? That's a different kind of security. That's a security that says, they may take my life from me now, but I'll just pick it back up. We should be concerned first and foremost about the glory of God. This is what we build for. Again, I'm not saying we just be stupid. We should be wise, right? He says, go be wise. In the midst of wolves, be wise. But wise about what? Wise about building God's kingdom. So this changes what we build for. This changes how we build. All right, so the kingdom of God is the place where God dwells and rules, right? Where, the peop- where His people are loved and where they love and obey Him perfectly. Jesus was ultimately, I believe, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. He was my place, my people, my rule, a blessing to the world. All that was, was wrapped up in Christ. It was done. It was finished. Now, now, if that's true, what are we doing then as ones who are building this kingdom that's not of this world? What do we do? We're taking that fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus. We now are in that fulfillment. We abide in Christ. We're now redeemed. We're adopted into that. Now all we do is we take that blessing to the world. We're taking that to the world. What we say is that in Christ, you too can be God's people. You too can be loved by Him. You too can enjoy His presence. You know, something I thought about is that, you know, at the top of Calvary stood the highest point of this kingdom. And so we build a kingdom, not from the ground up. Like, we're not people going, okay, we're going to build this thing from the ground. Jesus already laid and built the temple. The temple's already been built. What are we doing? We're just expanding the walls. We don't build God's kingdom from the ground up. We build it from the walls out. We take God, we take specifically Christ, who's God's perfect dwelling place, and we now become the dwelling place of God in Christ, and we just take that and invite people into that. The good news is this. We have a Savior who always knew the kingdom he was building was not of this world. I mean, we get confused daily, all the time. Like, I, what am I building for? I'm building for this. And, and God has to like wake us up. Right? Stop building that kingdom. Build this one. You fool, right? That's <laughs> how I feel sometimes. What are you thinking? But Jesus didn't do that. He was faithful to the building of this kingdom always. I think... It's because God's kingdom was his kingdom. 
it had become, it was synonymous. He was faithful to the end. He always built with confidence and assurance. He always knew in building that God's kingdom was the eternal kingdom. That it was coming. That it will be finished. That it will be complete. He knew this. And in Christ, in Christ we are set free to build His kingdom. Alright, imperative number six. Reformers will finish the work. Reformers will finish the work. They'll complete the task. Look at Nehemiah 6.15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Nehemiah has finished building the wall. Now, God did not give Nehemiah the task of ultimately reforming and rebuilding the people of God. That was a different task, but this was a similar task. So Nehemiah has finished building the wall in the places where God would dwell. And then another example of him completing the task, I think, is, is helping reestablish the covenant that we see later on in Nehemiah 10. So through the opposition, through the struggle, he pressed on towards the price. He finished the task. He finished the building, building place where the glory of God would dwell for a time. John 19, 28-30. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And where's Jesus at right now? Right? He's on the cross. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mean, Jesus was here was given a task that Nehemiah couldn't do, right? But Nehemiah was given a task that he could do. Both finished the tasks. Jesus came, lived the life that you and I could not live, right? I mean, this is old news for many of us. He earned the righteousness that we could never have earned. Then Jesus, a spotless sacrifice, went to the cross to die in our place. What was he doing? He was building the kingdom of God. He was preparing the way for God to dwell in his new temples, the hearts of man. That was the task Jesus was about. But what had to happen in order for these places, these people to become the dwelling places of God? Well, their hearts had to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. To be made holy and spotless. So what Jesus does? What has to happen in order for that sin to be made right? A payment has to be paid. A punishment has to be administered what is that punishment the wrath of god now you and i because we're not god would have to endure the wrath of god for all of eternity in order to well we technically would never satisfy then the wrath of god it would be an eternal payment what does jesus do on the cross jesus endures not just your sin but all sin I don't want to get into limited atonement or whether or not he also, you know, you get what I'm saying. But Jesus died at the very least for all those who would be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Okay? Suffice it for that for now. (laughs) So what's he do? He endures the wrath of God. Okay? He endures the wrath of God. He died and so finished the work. He persevered through to the end. All right. 
personal responsibility. Let's just talk about this for just a moment. If we are to finish the work, just talk about personal responsibility here. We have a true and real responsibility to run the race hard, fight hard, and depend hard. Okay, if we think about us running the race, okay, think about this with me. Truly, you must be, I mean, if, we're, if, if you're not abiding in the Word daily, spending time in prayer regularly, submitting to the grace of the church, chances are, we'll not make it. You know, again, I don't want to be an alarmist, but God has given us these means by which to encourage us to the end. Now, what's the balance then between legalism and laziness? I think the balance is work thoroughly and depend completely. Work thoroughly, depend completely. Work hard to follow Jesus. Discipline yourself. I mean, Paul makes it very clear. I I beat the flesh. And depend completely because it is his work. It's his work. The good news is this. We have a Savior who finished the task, and in Him we will finish the task, and He will finish the task in us. So part of Jesus' work, right? So He finished this, but that's not all that Jesus did. But, but that part, that piece of that justifying work also includes a sanctifying work through the power of the Spirit where He now finishes the work that He started in us. In one sense it's done, in another sense it's not. This work, too, he will finish. That's the good news. The good news is that Nehemiah couldn't, could not finish the task of, of leading these people to be God's people f- forever. But Jesus can. Jesus does. And Jesus will. We have two more, very quickly here. <laughs> it all depends, number seven, it all depends on his rescue to a new covenant. All of this depends on his rescue to a new covenant. That's not really an imperative, but you can. Nehemiah 10, 28-29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. Alright, so, what's going on here is the renewal of the covenant. Like, a, a covenant to keep the covenant. There's a renewal of we are God's covenant people going on here. But then Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. We'll read this a little bit slower. So, but when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he 
is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This very briefly, we don't have time. Nehemiah, leading his people to commit to the covenant, foreshadowed, believed the covenant, the coming of one who would lead his people to a new covenant. But this time, right? But this time, the one leading the people would not just lead them to a covenant that they need to commit to, but would keep the covenant for them and lead them to a new covenant in His own blood. Jesus would come, replace the temple, provide the people with security, and initiate the new covenant. When we seek to bring people to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, right, when, we, when we seek to lead people to do that, we do not call them to a law they cannot keep, a covenant they cannot keep. We call them to a surrender that God enables, that God kept for them, that God did for them. In this new covenant, eternal redemption is secured. Nehemiah cannot secure eternal redemption for these people in this covenant. They will fail. Jesus, though, can do this. He says this, How much more will the blood of Christ offered as a sacrifice without blemish to God? In this covenant, in this new covenant, our consciences have been purified from dead works in order to serve the living God. We've been set free from the building of our own kingdom in order to build God's kingdom. And the good news is this. With Jesus as the mediator of this covenant, we who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Not because we kept the covenant, but because He kept the covenant. Guys, Nehemiah could not die in the place of His people so that they could walk free. But Christ could. All of our sins committed under the first covenant are now forgiven since death has occurred by our Redeemer. He died so we don't have to. This is the new covenant. Last one is this. It all depends on His cleansing work. When I say it all depends on His new covenant, it also all depends on His cleansing work ultimately as a part of this new covenant. Look at Nehemiah 3, verses 8 through 9. He says, And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Think about Jesus, Matthew 21, 12 through 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. All right, so the cleansing and preparing of the temple requires the work of God. Notice in Nehemiah that he cleans the temple. But what do we know is going to happen? I mean, this is at the end of Nehemiah, but what's going to happen? What's inevitable based upon the cyclical nature of the story? Those idols are going to move right back in. 
And we know that by the time Jesus comes back, that now idolatry has moved back into the house of God. So at the very least, in the 400 years spanning the end of Nehemiah and Jesus cleansing the temple, we know that Robert, we know that idols and, and idolatry has moved back into the temple of God. But only when Jesus comes in and destroys the temple and becomes the temple himself does God finally and fully dwell among men in the man Christ Jesus. It is through Jesus that we then become the blood-washed God-dwelling temples of the new covenant. It requires His cleansing work. Nehemiah couldn't cleanse it in the way that Jesus came and cleansed the temple. Jesus cleansed us once and for all concerning our standing before the Father. What I'm excited to work through in Ephesians 5.25 later on, you know, maybe next year sometime, uh, is that even though He has purified us and cleansed us once and for all, He still is washing His bride with the Word. Alright, last couple of thoughts here. As we are seeking to build God's kingdom, we are seeking to help people love God again with all their heart, soul, and mind. As we do this, we are helping to, what are we doing? We're helping to cleanse these temples. We're coming in, we're helping people remove idols, remove sin from their hearts. I mean, obviously, we're not the ones that can do it, but we're used of God to help do that. We're part of, part of the process. Guys, in, in, in people's hearts, in our hearts, there's only room for the worship of one thing. The creator of the universe or the worship of anything else. By the power of the gospel, we help people to rid their temples with the worship of the world so they can worship God. I, I know God does that, but God's the one that can do that. And God's the one that ultimately changes all that. But God uses us to, to be a part of that, to call people to that and to invite them to that. Reformers are seeking to reform these temples. We desire both in our lives and in the lives of those around us to be temples where only the worship of God takes place. And so the good news is this, that Jesus is both the perfect temple and the one who ultimately stands behind the cleansing of us as temples to be the house, to house the presence of God. In Christ, we get to experience the presence of God. In Christ, we are reformed and we get to see the reformation of others, right? So I just want us to see that it all depends on His cleansing work. Nehemiah came in, cleansed the temple. Jesus comes in, cleansed the temple. But Jesus cleanses it in a different way. Jesus cleanses our, these temples in a way that is eternal. That ultimately that will satisfy God. So, we would enter, so God can enter into us as the dwelling place of God. And then we can enter into His presence forever. And what do we do then? What are we doing? What are we about among many things as Christians? But one of the main things we're about is about seeing these people become the temples where God's presence would dwell so that as they go, God's glory fills the earth. Now what does that involve? That involves more than just you need Jesus or you're going to go to hell. That's certainly part of it and that's certainly the foundation of it. That's also teaching them to obey all that He commands, right? So that that glory radiates from these people and our lives as clearly as we possibly can. Some concluding thoughts as we wrap up Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah don't really believe was about Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah was really about Christ. Christ was the one with the perfect conviction concerning the worship of God. Christ was the one ultimately heartbroken over the sheep without a shepherd. Christ was called to the task and faithfully finished it. Christ defeated the raging nations. Christ established this new covenant in His blood and cleanses His people so that they might be a part of it. Jesus was the ultimate reformer. Jesus had conviction about the way things were supposed to be. He was heartbroken about it, and He was called certainly to do something about it. We are reformers, not so that we can be right with God, but because Jesus first began the process of reformation in us. Jesus was the reformer, and we abide in Him. And the last two thoughts are this. Praise God. Everyone look up here at me, okay? Praise God that Jesus was heartbroken over his sheep without a shepherd. Amen? Praise God that he looked at your life, if you're a follower of Christ, he looked at your life, and he looked at my life, and he said, There's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Right? And he was heartbroken, and he did something about it. He sought reformation in your heart and my heart. Jesus did something about it. We loved, or we love, because why? Because He first loved us. We go, why? Because He first came to us. We seek reformation in the lives of those around us because He sought reformation in us. For what purpose? For His glory and certainly our joy and our good in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We'll sing Let the Nations Be Glad. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray that Your people are encouraged. Father, it's been good Nehemiah has been more than I imagined it would be or it would be and Father just uh, just give you praise for that as we seek to move on to uh, another word from you another word from your scriptures I pray that you'd help us to wrap our minds around at this point in our journey what Nehemiah is about and maybe even this week to spend more time in Nehemiah and kind of put a bow on some things and Lord, maybe give ourselves even some action steps that we need to take. And Father, we could run the race hard, but depend fully on You. Father, I, I pray that we, we would sense Your reforming work in our lives daily. That You would remove the, the grime that so hinders the, Your glory radiating from us. We would sense Your presence and Your working doing that. That we would be satisfied in Your work in us to this point. We would be thankful that You have given us this measure of faith that we have today, that we would rest in that, but yet we would yearn and long for more, that You would grant us more faith. 
So a, a satisfaction in your work, but a longing for more, knowing that you will grant that and can grant that and in time. Father, we would then, as we seek reformation in the people around us, that we would recognize that it is your work and that you will grant it if it is your will and you will grant it in your timing. And Father, recognize that we don't go on our own. We go of our own initiative. We go because you first came. And so, Father, let us sing these praises to your name in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.